Hi, my name is Maddie, and the Old Testament reading is found in Exodus 19, verses 16 through 20. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand on the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain. And the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Caitlin. The New Testament reading is found in Ephesians 2, 7 through 13 in the message. Now God has us right where he wants us, with all the time in this world and the next to shower grace and kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. Saving is all his idea and all his work. All we do is trust him enough to let him do it. It's God's gift from start to finish. We don't play the major role. If we did, we'd probably go around bragging that we'd done the whole thing. No, we neither make nor save ourselves. God does both the making and saving. He creates each of us by Christ Jesus to join him in the work he does, the good work he has gotten ready for us to do, work we had better be doing. But don't take any of this for granted. It was only yesterday that you yourself that you outsiders to God's ways had no idea of any of this, didn't know the first thing about the way God works, hadn't the faintest idea of Christ. You knew nothing of that rich history of God's covenants and promises in Israel, hadn't a clue about what God was doing in the world at large. Now because of Christ, dying that death, shedding that blood, you who were once out of it altogether are in on everything." The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Ian. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Mark 2, 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The Gospel of the Lord. Remain standing as we pray. Holy Spirit, would you come and breathe afresh on us? Would you wake us up in our hearts to you, prepare us to be able to receive your word? Make this more than the transfer of information. Make this transformation. Make this something that takes root inside of us and won't let go. Help us to see Jesus. Help us to become like Jesus. We pray these things to the glory of God in Christ's name. Everybody said, amen. You may be seated. 
Well, we're in week three of a series through the Gospel of Mark. Mark is the shortest gospel of the four. It's also, by tradition, the earliest. Uh, many, based on different clues within his writing and on early tradition, uh, Mark's gospel was probably written somewhere around A.D. 60, so within a generation uh, or so uh, of Jesus' death and resurrection. But there's also this sense in Mark that he's inviting you into a process of discovery. He wants you to kind of question almost along with the disciples who this Jesus is. And so one of the threads, maybe the main thread that we're going to hang on to throughout the series is this very question, who is Jesus? And it may be of some comfort to you that in Mark, even the disciples are puzzled and get it wrong. That sometimes they see it, sometimes they don't, but overall they're a little bit confused. In fact, two of the big responses to Jesus in Mark's gospel is either they are astonished and afraid or they are amazed and in awe. Either way, it's Mark's way of saying, we, we had no category for this. We had no idea what this person was going to be like or who he really was. So Mark invites us, wrestle with this question. Mark also uses this phrase immediately, 42 times in his gospel. So it's a fast-paced gospel. In fact, he doesn't waste time, quote-unquote, with a nativity story or cute stuff about babies and angels and stars. Mark drops us right in with a man wearing camel hair in the middle of the wilderness, a guy named John the Baptist, and he starts, he's, the story starts very quickly. It's like a fast-paced action movie. So one of the things we've been doing throughout this uh, series is to try to imagine that it's a play. In fact, some, many commentators believe Mark is written in kind of the format of a Greek or Roman play, a theater. Uh, it, maybe for us it might be helpful to say, imagine that it's a TV show and imagine that each week is like another episode. And in each episode, we're being asked to confront a certain aspect of who Jesus is. So here we are, episode three, and it's a whole bunch of scenes of conflict. Scenes of conflict, of Jesus running into conflict with others. So far, we've seen Jesus as the Son of God. We've talked about his identity and destiny and authority. We've seen Jesus as the healer, how that authority extends outward to challenge demons and sickness and all of that. But now, today, we're seeing Jesus the scandalous. Jesus the scandalous because his authority seems to be getting him in trouble. He's running into conflict. And there's questions about who this guy thinks he is. Now, I need to stop right here because our tendency as Americans is to automatically hear this story and interpret it as Jesus the heroic outlaw, you know, because we are Americans and we love stories about renegades who all of a sudden create nations, right? The American Revolution, I'll never forget being in England with Dan uh, O'Brien, and we're chatting with a student at Oxford, and, she, and he says, what are you studying? And she says, I'm studying revolutions. And he says, oh, like maybe the American one? She politely says, no, the French one, because the American one wasn't quite a revolution. He says, what do you mean? Of course it was. He says, well, you didn't execute the king. You just sort of rebelled against him, you know? Like, okay, you're right. Technically, you're right. I mean, but think about it. We are the people who took the British national anthem and set our own words to it. <laughs> Did you know that my country, tis of these, really God saved the queen and we just wrote our own words to it, right? This is the gall that we have as Americans, 
okay? We're not just going to leave. We're going to take your national anthem and write our own words to it. <laughs> Sweet land of liberty. This is what we do. So, so when we see these stories of Jesus in conflict, we're tempted to put on a very American lens and say, ah, there's Jesus, that renegade outlaw who breaks all the sheriff's rules but somehow saves the town from the evil posse, you know, whatever. The heroic maverick. This is, our, this is our way of reading you, this maverick renegade kind of thing. But that's actually not what is going on. In fact, Mark wants us to see something deeper to the story. This isn't about Jesus, the lawbreaker. This is about Jesus having the authority of God, the lawgiver. That, that's different. In other words, Jesus isn't disregarding these laws because he's a lawbreaker. He's disregarding them because he's saying, I'm above them. I'm the very one who gave these laws. My authority is as of God himself. Where the law functioned to reveal God, Jesus is saying, I am him. So I can reveal the very heart of God. The law could just re reveal some things about the character of God. But Jesus is like, I can reveal the very essence and nature of God. So everything that Jesus is, is running into conflicts about with, with, with regard to the law is not because he's a rebel without a cause or a rebel with a cause even. He's doing this because Mark is showing us these stories to say that one who is greater than the law has now arrived. One who is greater than the Torah and the Sabbath and the temple, all of those, one who is greater is now on the scene. So instead of spending all of our time looking specifically at how Jesus ran into conflict with those people, I would like for us to reflect in this episode about how Jesus creates conflict in us and how these specific stories are not so much about, oh, you know, isn't that cool? Look at what he did to them. But rather, how do these stories reveal a Jesus that challenges us, that maybe even offends us or confronts us, or shakes us up, or ruffles our feathers. So there's three scenes within this episode that I want us to look at. The first scene is in Mark 2, verse 13. If you've got your Bibles, click there, scroll there, turn there. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Do you notice that every time Mark says the word tax collectors, he also says the word sinners? Now, we may or may not like tax season, but nobody's going to say, well, they're an outright sinner. Why is Mark doing this? We're going to get to that in a minute. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We need to look a little bit more closely at who these main characters are in the drama. Who are tax collectors, first of all? Tax collectors were viewed as colluding and collaborating with the oppressor of Israel. And here's why. 
Because this is how a tax collector thing works, okay? So, so read, let's say you've decided your career is going to be a tax collector, and everybody, your whole family's saying, why would you do this, Read, How could you do this? And you're saying, well, I don't have land, so I can't be a farmer, and I didn't inherit much, so I, I, I'm, this is what I have to do, okay? I'm going to provide for my family. So Reed goes over to a Roman official, and he says, I'm signing up to be a tax collector for the region of Briargate, Okay? And they say, okay, Reed, that's good. That's good. We think we can get a lot of money. Actually, we estimate that the tax revenue from, from Briargate, and let's just make up ridiculous numbers here, the tax revenue for the region of Briargate is going to be $5 million. And Reed says, there's no way that's true. And the Roman guy says, you want to argue with me, Reed? Reed's desperate. And he says, okay, 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 $5 million. And then the official says, and by the way, Reed, you, don't, you know how this works. You have to pay up front. Reed has to... F- pay ahead of time. He has to buy into the business. Talk about an expensive investment. You've got to buy in first and then make your money back. So Reed says, well, I don't have, I mean, he goes back, he does everything he can. He gets five million. He comes back to the Roman officials. He says, okay, here it is. Here's the taxes for the year 2016, $5 million for the province of Briargate. And the Roman official says, great, thanks. Have a nice day. And now Reed is really freaking out. Because how is he supposed to make back $5 million? I don't know. So he's, he's knocking on doors, and he's going to resort to every trick he can. He's going to lie. He's going to cheat. He's going to bully. He's going to threaten. He's going to manipulate. He might even extort. He might blackmail. Because he might knock on one door, and they might give him $1,000, but he doesn't know what the person at the next door is going to give him. So he's going to get as much as he can. Do you see why people hated tax collectors? Because you couldn't trust them. Any, anything in excess that Reed was going to make as profit, he had to make from his business. So he had to buy in, a heavy buy-in, and then any, anything else was just on his own. And so he was, t- he was greatly incentivized to be dishonest, to put it lightly. <laughs> greatly incentivized. So tax collectors not only were ruthless and, and liars and cheaters, but worse, of, worse yet, they were collaborating with Rome, that brutal oppressor, that sign of the enemy. And so that's why Mark names tax collectors in the same breath as sinners. But who were Pharisees? On the flip side of the tracks over here, you have Pharisees. And now when we think of Pharisees, if you've been around church a little bit, you're like, oh yeah, I know Pharisees. They're the bad guys. Actually, Pharisees were awesome people. You see, a long time ago, When Israel was taken into captivity into Babylon, they weren't allowed to do their temple worship stuff. They couldn't sacrifice. They couldn't kill Adam. They couldn't. They had no other way of showing devotion to God. Imagine that. Imagine that your whole life you're used to, I show my devotion to God by going to church, by by worshiping. And all of a sudden you find yourself in an oppressive culture that is hostile toward you and to your faith. And you have no way of showing your devotion to God anymore except by showing how different you are. And so for Israel in exile, for the Jews in exile, the only way to show their devotion to God was to be really, really good at keeping the law. And there were some people that were better than others at keeping the law, and they they were really good at telling others how to keep the law. These people were called Pharisees. But Pharisees might as well be pastors, people who just helped others understand what it means to be different, what it means to be separate from the world. It's pretty much how we preach. But over time, 
something began to happen. They began to take this a little bit too far because they thought, look, if we could just perfect the art of obedience, then God will bless us. Now tell me there aren't a group of people in America today who think that. If we would just repent and be better, then God would bless us again and we'd never have a terrible day at the stock market. Never heard that, have you? If we just get, if we could just, if I could just get prayer in school or just get this right and this. Listen, these are not evil people and neither were the Pharisees. They were pure-hearted people who wanted to see God back in their nation again. Oh, I'm rough. I'm just kind of messing with you a little bit. But the Pharisees, the problem that they had was they were so concerned about this that they didn't want anybody to mess up. And Jesus comes in and he says, what? Well, what's wrong? I'm going to go eat at the tax collector's house. And they're like, Jesus, things were looking good. We were getting people to obey all of our rules. Now you went and did that. Jesus, you were going to screw this up for all of us. The second scene is very similar to the first. It's a scene about Sabbath. And we skipped over one Sabbath story because there's so much in there, but I want just to stay with this thread. Mark 3, verse 1. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who are watching, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger. Don't miss this. Don't miss the things that really provoke anger. Sociologists tell us that the root of anger is when we see something that obstructs a goal or even when we see an injustice. There is a purpose to anger. Jesus shows a kind of anger here, and he's grieved at the hardness of their heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him on how to destroy him. Isn't this ironic? Jesus is saying, look, is it better to do good or harm on the Sabbath? And they can't answer that. So Jesus goes ahead and does good, and the Pharisees go ahead and plot harm. And make themselves guilty of the very law they were hoping to uphold. This may seem ticky-tacky to you, like Sabbath. Who cares about Sabbath? What's the deal with Sabbath? If you were a Jew living in Babylon and you could no longer go to temple, how would you show that you were different from the world? If your only way to show your devotion to God was to show how good you were at obeying him, there were three things that you would do as a Jew. First, if you were a male, you'd be circumcised. But the other two are for everyone. It was about what you ate and didn't eat. You did your best, even in Babylon, to to stick to the code. Don't eat pork. Don't eat shrimp. All the stuff, right? It was a way of marking out to say, look, I'm different. I don't go to those kinds of movies. And then you did Sabbath. You did Sabbath because it was a way of saying, look, look at all those people, all of them working. Look at me. We're not working. I want you to see this. This is not arbitrary. Sabbath was a way for a Jew to stand out as the people of God. We have our versions of that. 
We have our own ways of standing out as Christians. How do I live differently than the world? Look, all of that is good, right? It's good. It's wonderful to begin with the question of, Lord, how can we be set apart, marked out, set out as different from the world? Those are wonderful things to, to think about and pray about. But let me tell you this. Self-righteousness will turn a standard into a barrier. Self-righteousness will turn a standard into a barrier. When Jesus says, are you telling me I shouldn't heal this man with the withered hand on the Sabbath? He was saying, since when? Since when did your standard become a barrier that prevented you from helping others? Since when did your self-righteousness turn a standard into a barrier from helping others? You guys, this is real. This is what we do. We're so concerned about being different, being set apart, being holier, taking a stand for Jesus, that without noticing it, your standards and my standards have become barriers that prevent us from helping someone in need. I doubt that for you it's Sabbath, but there's probably a lot of other barriers we could think of. What are they? What are those barriers? What started out as a good, innocent standard, but then all of a sudden became a barrier that says, well, I'm not helping them. And look, we can laugh. Some of you live long enough, you can laugh at the old ones, right? Oh, remember when we all thought tattoos were bad? Oh, <laughs> you know. All right. I think every generation is tempted in this way. We're all faced with it. Look, it's about to possibly be a pretty ugly political season. And we can create barriers that say Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, but those are not God's barriers. Those barriers have nothing to do with you. Those are not your lines. Those are not your lines. I don't want us to be a, a people who are so consumed with our lines that all of a sudden someone's outside it who needs help. And we're like, well, I don't know about that. I mean, we'll help refugees, but not Muslim refugees. Oh, man, am I messing with you? We are confronted by the scandal of Jesus' welcome. We are confronted by the scandal of his welcome. Jesus isn't just sort of ah, disregarding kind of like some crazy rebel. No. Jesus is saying, listen, there's something you need to know about God, that his welcome is so radical that it's going to offend you. It's so radical that it extends to tax collectors, people that you want kicked out. Jesus says, I'm going to go eat with them. People that you want cast out, a withered hand, that guy should be, don't be anywhere near the synagogue. You don't belong here. You're not the churchy type. Jesus says, I'll take him by the hand. When do your standards become barriers? How can you be confronted today by the scandal of Jesus' welcome? What does it mean to be a Christian that says, you know what? There's some people I'm not ready to welcome. There's some people I'm not ready to associate with. There's some people I, I don't want to be in my carpool. How might the scandal of Jesus' welcome confront that? 
But the story goes on. If you take this all the way down to Mark 3, listen to verse 8. When a great crowd heard all that he was doing, they followed him from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan. From around. There's this huge crowd following him. And then down to verse 13. And Jesus went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Okay. If you wondered about the Old Testament reading this morning, text from Exodus where God's on Sinai and there's like thunder and lightning, and you're like, why was that the Old Testament? You know why? Because that's the picture of what it's like for the Lord on the mountain to call his people up. That was the first time that happened. The Lord is on Sinai, and it's great and terrifying and terrible. And it says, and the Lord called Moses up. Now it says here in the Gospels, it says, and Jesus went up on the mountain, and he called to him those whom he desired. Jesus is standing in the role of God and saying, I'm going on the mountain. The mountain's mine. And now I'm going to call people up. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, here's the thing. We talked about being confronted with the scandal of Jesus' welcome, but guess what? There's also, we are confronted by the scandal of Jesus' call. We would rather have one without the other. I love the story of Jesus welcoming sinners. But did you forget that he's the same Jesus who will call disciples? You love, I love Jesus. He's so cool, man. He's just partying with Levi. Right, right, right. But then he went up the mountain and called out of the crowd disciples. Jesus doesn't just welcome sinners. He also calls disciples. And to be honest, both of those things are offensive to us. They are. Because half of us would love the Jesus who calls disciples. Oh, I love it. I just want to be a disciple of Jesus. Just want to be with Jesus. And then Jesus is like, well, do you know that to be a disciple is to like be with me? You catch the verse in there where Jesus says he called them to be disciples to be with him at the heart of discipleship. Please catch this this morning. At the heart of discipleship is just being with Jesus. What's discipleship? We can develop programs and curriculums. We can distribute them and we can shrink wrap them and send them around the globe. But the very heart of discipleship is what Mark says about Jesus. He called them to be with him and to be sent by him. That's what it means. So, so the half of you that are like, well, I just love being with Jesus as his disciple. He says, right, well, just, just as, so long as you understand that to be with me is to be with me at Levi's table. And to be with me when I reach out and touch the man with the, with the withered hand. It's to be with me when I go back into the world. It's to be with me. And then the other half of you that are like, well, I just love party Jesus, you know. I love like sort of frat boy Jesus, you know. He just has, so, he's so cool, man. He's so cool. You're like, no, you're missing it because that, that Jesus doesn't exist. <laughs> the Jesus who welcomes sinners is also the Jesus who calls disciples. See, as the text goes on, there's a crowd following him, no doubt. They were intrigued by the miracles, no doubt. They were moved by his kindness. But Jesus is like, okay, great. I just want to tell you, this journey doesn't end with me at your house. This journey ends with you at my house. See, 
Think about the location change. There's been a scene change in the drama. The opening scene is Jesus meeting us where we are. But the ending scene of the episode is Jesus calling us to where he is. Church, this is the movement of the Christian life. Jesus meets us where we are, and then he calls us to where he is. Jesus welcomes us where we are in order to call us to where he is. That's the scandal of it all. The scandal of it all is that he loves us enough to meet us and welcome us where we are. And the scandal of it all is that he loves us too much to let us stay. Levi, I don't want you to stay as a tax collector. I want you to follow me. Levi, I don't want you to stay extorting and deceiving. And I want you to follow me. If we're paying attention to the life with Christ, it's going to be these two movements constantly. We're going to be called to be with Jesus, and then Jesus says, okay, you ready? Now follow me. We're going to go welcome sinners. I don't want to welcome sinners. Stick with me. We're going to welcome sinners. And then we're going to call them to be with me. Okay, I love this part of being with you, Jesus. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now we're going to go welcome sinners, and then we're going to come call, be called to be with Jesus. Then we're going to follow Jesus and go welcome... This is what we do. We gather on Sundays, coming up the mountain. But we don't stay there, right? Remember the Mount of Transfiguration story? Peter doesn't quite get it, right? He's like, dude, this is awesome. Let's stay here. We could build houses. We could charge tickets to Jesus' land. It'd be awesome. Jesus is like, no, no, you don't get it. I came, the Son of Man came into the world to seek and save the lost. You're not yet with Jesus if you're not following him into welcoming the outcast, the stranger, the sinner. Somehow we got to do 